Good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege to have the opportunity to share with you this morning, and welcome to everyone who's in the venue. Welcome to all of you that are joining us online. Uh, Welcome to the Bosch congregation and other congregations and visitors that are joining us. Uh, Like Lou said, my name's Ryan, and I have the privilege of kind of doing the third installment of this sermon series where we're looking at what does it mean to become emotionally mature? What does it mean for us to become emotionally mature? And Pete Scazzario is, is kind of like the godfather on this stuff. We're looking to some of his work and we're hoping that in some way as we engage with these things, we will become more like Jesus in this way. I, I don't know about you, but I feel like this is a neglected area in so many of our lives. And all too often, I think we think spirituality and spiritual unity uh, maturity is all about Bible knowledge and how much you know or leadership experience or how much you serve. And, and those are all the marks of spiritual maturity. But I am becoming more and more convinced that spiritual emotional maturity is a key indicator of the truly spiritual, spiritually mature. So it's our hope in this uh, kind of journey that we would be able to not just come to recognize and understand all of our emotions, but we're also hoping that we would come to a place of knowing what it means to, to deal with those emotions well and maturely and to take them to God and be able to embrace our different kind of emotions where appropriate and maybe dismantle and, and break them down where appropriate. And hopefully we'd get to a place where we're able to manage them more as Christ would have us manage them and deal with them and and learn to, to live out of that place of spiritual and emotional maturity. So I want to ask you right at the outset here this morning, what would you give yourself out of 10 for spiritual emotional maturity? Emotional maturity, just what would you give yourself out of 10? And wives, let me be clear on the question. What would you give yourself was the question that I just asked you. I don't know why you've got your husband's number in mind, right? And yes, us guys, we can own it. This is an area of kind of more often deficit for us. I actually heard one guy say that he's only got two emotions. He's either angry or asleep. Those are his two emotions. But I personally would at least give him one out of 10 for recognizing that anger is an emotion, right? So we've got to recognize that this is real. What would you give yourself? What would you give yourself? Maybe you want to take a moment after the gathering today to share with a friend, a family member, a spouse, what number you gave yourself and just get their feedback on that. Are you kind of reading that right in their view? But if you're anything like me, here's the deal. I think I acutely recognize that there is room for growth when it comes to emotional maturity in my life. This week I was playing with this toy. It's one of my kids' toys. I'm not, I'm not sure if you can recognize it. Do you, guys, do you guys know who this is? This is Stretch Armstrong. See, Stretch Armstrong was famous in the 80s when I was growing up in the States, right? This little toy, and it, it kind of like, he's got a few tricks. And, and as I was playing with this, he actually more recently was made famous by the movie uh, Walter Mitty, if you've watched that. Stretch kind of comes out in that movie. But, but Stretch Armstrong, as I was playing with this guy, I looked at him and I went... I'm so often kind of expected to be stretch. 
stretch, you know, stretch, you can, you can kind of, I mean, obviously he looks strong and, and he, he's, he's kind of the strong figure. And, and here's the coolest thing about stretch is he can stretch, right? He can stretch a whole lot. And then guess what? He just bounces back. He just bounces back. It takes a little while, but he bounces back. And, and so often I look at myself and I go, I've got to be stretched. In so many people's eyes, I, I feel like I'm called to be stretched. And maybe you can, can resonate with this. How much st- uh, kind of the stress and all the strains of COVID have, have brought on the stretch in our lives. How much we can feel like just normal life throws chaos at us. And, and we can find in cancer and job loss. And we can find in broken relationships. And we can find in just the normal pressures of life, the stretch coming on in our lives. All through it, we feel like we've got to stretch and then just bounce back like Stretch Armstrong, right? We stretch to meet people's expectations. We stretch to keep up with the standards. We stretch to meet the pace in our lives. We stretch to make the most of every moment. We stretch and hope that we don't snap. We hope that we don't snap. So here's the big synopsis for us today. The more I live in the stretch, the less I become emotionally mature in my life. The more I live in the stretch, the less I become emotionally mature in my life. When I'm going too fast, I'm not noticing. When I am thinking too hard, I'm not listening and I'm not engaging. When I'm running too much, I'm not able to sit down. I'm not able to process. I'm not able to meet others in that moment. When I'm feeling the stretch, I'm not able to appropriately relate to God and relate to others as God would call me to. Recently, I felt this acutely when I was sitting down with Nina, my eldest daughter, sitting in the front row here this morning. And I was sitting down with Nina. Now, what you got to know about me is Kate and I have been having conversations about this for years. I I regularly would kind of say, hey, babe, I don't think I'm really kind of like the small kid's dad. That's not really my sweet spot. You know, I'm going to come into my own as coach dad when my kids are a little bit older and they're kind of looking for wisdom and advice and we need to figure things out in life and they need need to navigate the big bad world. That's where I'm going to come into my own, right? And as I was sitting down with Nina and we were having a great conversation, we were figuring something out, this, this kind of thoughts just crept into my mind. And the thought was this, have I developed the kind of foundation as a dad to be called upon to be the coach dad in these years of my kids' lives? And I wondered in that moment, it really hit me for a six. Let me just be honest. It hit me for a six. And I wondered if the stretch that I'd been giving to, into at, in life just generally, in pastoral ministry and in the busyness of the 21st century and all the other kind of voices calling my name, if I'd been giving into the stretch to the point where I'd potentially not developed the depth. We've got it. We've got a great relationship. We've got a foundation. But the depth a foundation that I as a dad really would want to have in these important years in my kids' lives. And it hit me for a six. That kind of epiphany, that question plagued me for days. Have I been giving in to the stretch in my life? 
That's just one example from our life, and I'm sure you've got examples from your life. But in the same way, the overall danger, right? The overall danger is that when we give into the stretch, we stunt the work of Christ within us. And from within us into the world, we stunt that work. And we miss out on that, that beautiful communion and connection and discipleship work that Christ would want to do in our lives relationally. That's the way he does it. And so today, the big idea is this. The joy, the joy of embracing God's limits in our lives. The joy of embracing God's limits in our lives. See, because I believe becoming emotionally mature as God's people and as God desires us to be can only happen when we embrace God's limits in our lives. And guess what? I asked, please, could I preach this sermon today? Please, could I preach this topic in this series? Why? Because I need to do the work. I need to preach this message to myself. So in a sense, I'm standing on the stage today, but I'm also sitting in the front row and I'm saying, yes, Lord, work on me. Do your deep work in my life. I am Stretch Armstrong, right? And I've got the stretch sickness bad in my life. My wife will tell you, my kids will tell you, the elders will tell you, the staff will tell you. And it's my hope that by the end of us, not just you, but also I will receive five kind of understandings about the world we live in. And it's my hope that we'll recognize that embracing limits, embracing limits in our lives is a theological matter. We are not God. We are not God. Secondly, it's a personal matter. It's different for every single person. Thirdly, it's a spiritual matter. And the spiritual disciplines matter. See what I did there. Fourthly, it's a worldview matter. It's about presence, presence over progress. And then fifthly, it is a practical matter. We continually have to work at this. Guess what, guys? Bad news. The curriculum of Christ in our life never ends this side of eternity. And the curriculum of spiritual and emotional maturity never ends this side of eternity. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one character primarily from Scripture. His name is John. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And we're not going to work through texts about John kind of expositionally. What we're going to do is we're just going to look at the role model that John is to us in this regard. And so if you want to turn your Bibles open to John chapter 1, and we're going to we're going to discover the incredible self-awareness that John seemed to have about his God-given limits. And we're also going to see how he was even able to, to find joy in the limits that God had given him. He was able to embrace those limits. So John chapter 1 and verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you. He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, we need to give, and he answered, no. So they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now see what's clear here is that John knew who he was and who he was not. And this is our first insight about embracing God-given limits in our lives. John helps us to recognize and embrace limits and, and recognize that embracing limits is a deeply theological matter. It's about who you really believe is God and is in charge in your life. John says, I am not the Christ. And that may seem obvious to us, right? I don't think many of us are going to try and claim that we're God, right? None of us are going to kind of come out, we'll all think you're loony if you start saying things like that. It may seem obvious to us, but here's the crazy thing. I think if we just peel back the layers just a little bit in our lives, here's the crazy thing. At a deeper, maybe even subconscious level, I think one of the greatest reasons in our day today that you and I struggle, even here within Christian circles, we struggle with embracing limits is that we mistakenly have a Messiah complex or a Savior complex. How many of us often subtly believe that it's all up to us to make it work. It's all up to us. How many of us subtly believe that we must save others and save ourselves? How many of us often, too often, can't rest, can't wait, can't trust, and seem to take matters into our own hands because we are kind of feeling like, maybe I need to take control here. How many of us believe that it's upon us to finish the work? to get it done, to make it happen. John clearly understood he was not good, but guess what? He understood that because he recognized who God had called him to be. Think back to the garden for a moment, right? We know Adam and Eve and the serpent comes along and the serpent tempts them. What is at the heart of the temptation? Two things, two things. One, there are seeds of doubt. Really? Are you sure that God loves you? Is he not holding out on you? And then secondly, you can be God. When it comes to embracing limits, I say this is a deeply theological matter because I believe we're too inclined to buy into those two things. Does God really love us when he says, this is the way we should do life? When God says, I don't want that for you, don't run too hard. I've put Sabbath rhythms in for a reason. It's a theological matter. Do we, do we trust God? Do we believe him? And will we give in to his ways? And will we say yes and re- real, I mean, receive those things with joy because we trust him? Or do we feel like, nah, God's just holding out on us with these limitations in life? Secondly, it's not just about doubt. It's also about promise. In the garden, there's this promise, you will be like God. And what do we know about God? He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful and he's omniscient. It means he's all knowing, right? And what happens is we find ourselves kind of going, yes, we want more of that. And so many people function in our world like they're God, like they can be in all these places at one time and they're all knowing and all powerful. I'm not sure if you've found that little temptation or if you see people running like that. See, the truth is we are none of those things other than some of those moms who wear those like, how does she do it t-shirts, you know, those moms. They, they might be able to be omnipresent in two places at once. But, but the deal is, 
I would love to encourage you next time, you feeling a pressure, either it's a self-induced pressure or it's a pressure from others to be omni-anything, I would encourage you to pause. I'd encourage you to step back. I'd, I'd encourage you to remind yourself of what you deeply believe. I am not God. I cannot be in multiple places at once. I do not know everything and I don't have the power. And so I'm going to willingly embrace some of the limits that God has put in place. I'm going to find joy in those things, and I'm going to live in the trade-off. Because I'm telling you now, if you try and be God, if you try, what happens is you won't make it, right? This is embracing limits is a deeply theological matter. We've got to realize that we are not God. We don't have what it takes. We can't do it all. We aren't always the answer for everyone. But there is a God that we can turn to. He is the limitless one. I don't know how many times I've thought, if I could just get my hands on some of those limitless pills, right? Then, then I'd be able to do everything I want to do. No, that's me trying to be God again in an unhelpful way. There is a limitless one. His name is God and he is always the answer. Secondly then, Embracing limits is also a very personal matter. It's a very personal matter. And why do I say that? What we see in this passage is we see Elijah, I mean, not John, uh, we see John the Baptist saying, hey, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophets, and I'm not the Christ. He clearly knows that those are the things that he's not, but he's able to say that with a confidence because he knows who he is, and he's clear on who God's called him to be. I mean, you've got to have some got to have some clarity to claim Isaiah's prophecy as, yep, that's me. I'm the one in the deserts. I'm the one who's calling out the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He just, he just appropriates that claim because he's clear on who God's called him to be. And he lives out of that place with a personal clarity. It enables him to more easily say his yeses and say his noes. Embrace those limits related to these yeses and these noes. So I wonder about your life again. Are you clear on who you are? Are you clear on who God's called you to be, what God's called you to do? Maybe some of the answers are simple. If you are single, there's a clarity and a call in that. If you are married, there's a clarity and a call in that. If you have children, there's a clarity and a call in that. If you're a Christian, there's a clarity and a call in that. If you lead a business, there's a clarity and a call in those things. And we need to embrace recognizing that the limits and embracing limits is deeply personal to what God has called us to do. Maybe we can think about just some of the natural limits of these things for a moment. What are the natural limits of your personality and your temperament? What are the limits of your current season of life? Do you have young kids or maybe elderly parents who are needing care? Are you studying? Are you experiencing maybe personal illness that you're living with? What are the limits of your relational status? What, what would you say are the limits of your emotional and physical and, and intellectual capacities? Guys, we can't fool ourselves with these things. These are natural God-given limits, and we need to embrace the reality of them. We will live more confidently, and we will live with greater clarity when we embrace these natural God-given limits. These things should speak to us. And here's the deal, and I want to pause here for a moment. I believe this is important. Here's what we know, right? 
We know that all human beings are created equal before God, equal in, in, in value and worth because we created in the, the image of God. But guess what? Not all human beings are equal in talent and gifting and calling and capacity. I think if you've been watching the Olympics for any amount of time, you will know this to be true. We're not all equal in all of these things. So why then, if we know these two things to be true, that we're all equal, but we're also all different, why then do we struggle so much with comparison and the lack of personal contentment, which leads us to not celebrate and joyfully embrace limits, natural limits in our lives? I think it's because we struggle with the reality that these limits have been put in place by God and that they are there and they are real. And, and so what do we have? What do we have? I think all too often we have one and two talent people beating themselves up all day because they're not. They're on the Insta feeds of the five talent people. And, and what's happening? They're being robbed, robbed by the number one thief of joy in our, in our lives, which is comparison. What's the outcome of that? It can throw us off kilter in our lives can make us envious of what others have and, and that can leave us discontent and it, it can mess with our emotions, none of which is good for the soul. And sometimes we can avoid all that if we were just to embrace the natural limits of what God has given us. This is a very personal and specific thing. What triggers one person? It's not going to trigger the other. What inspires or serves one person is not going to inspire or serve another. Like Kate and I, we find ourselves on the opposite ends of so many of these things, right? And some of the things which she needs to be encouraged in, I need to be kind of curtailed in. And some of the things I need to be curtailed in, she needs to be encouraged in. I think I said those two things the same way. Anyway, you know what I'm, what I'm getting at. Like, like the phone, right? See, Kate has got self-diagnosed phone phobia. And so I spend my life kind of going, answer your phone, I'm sure it's important. And she spends her life saying, don't answer your, poor, your phone, it can't be that important. And we're on the opposite side because this is a very personal thing. So it's not a one-brush dynamic. And let's, let's pick up again with John the Baptist. Two chapters later, John chapter 3 and verse 26. I want us to show uh, an amazing thing that happens here, just the beauty and security of John. John chapter 3, verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, this is John's disciples coming to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, he sp spoke about him being, uh, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, he says, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. See, what's happened here is, is Jesus has now been baptized by John. And just a little while later, he's in the same area and he's now doing the baptizing. And all these people are walking right past John and going to Jesus. And you can see the insecurity of the disciples. They're kind of going, had you not noticed? And I'm guessing John's like, of course he's noticed. There's a crowd right there, right? But they, they, they're out of their insecurity, they come to John. So what, is, what does he say? How does he answer? He says, I think, uh, he says this, he says, John, verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Don't you love John's perspective and maturity on this? I think for me, what's potentially most striking about this is John seems to be completely free from competing and performing and impressing people. John's just getting on with it. And even as the disciples seem to start getting insecure and and, and they're a little bit kind of worried about John's baptismal market share that's kind of going down and dwindling, dwindling a little bit, John is not worried about that at all. He recognizes what God is ultimately doing and he's able to find joy in the limits of what he's experiencing. See, I think we need to recognize that the disciples, the disciples were living for something else. They were pretty keen on, on something else. And I think this gives us a, a glimpse into their, their perspectives on, on the way that they believe things ought to be going, right? All over the Gospels, we also see this true of Jesus' disciples. See, these guys are out. They want to win. They want to be, be ahead. They want privilege and possessions and power. These are the desires of their hearts that they wanted more and more of. And I think it's all part of the progress worldview. The progress worldview that our, our lives should always be getting better, bigger, faster. That's what winning looks like. They believe that the things in our lives should always be heading in that direction. And guess what? This progress worldview, I believe, is even more prolific in our day than it was in theirs. I don't think I have to convince you of that, right? But here's the point I want to draw out for us today. Third insight on this is that when it comes to embracing God-given limits in our lives, we have to understand that embracing limits is a worldview matter. Yes, it's a theological matter. Yes, it's a personal matter. But it's also based on our worldview. Our, uh, our ability to embrace limits is based on our worldview. See, John doesn't agree with his disciples. He doesn't agree with their read on the situation. He's not taken in by this progress-orientated worldview. He seems to, we know about John, he, he seems to have given up on that long time ago, right? He's the one who's out there in the wilderness, says he's wearing kind of just kind of cloth and, and things like that, materials kind of made up on the go. He's eating honey from bees. He's given up on kind of being in the big city and kind of living according to other people's agendas. He's not one of the Pharisees at all. He's given himself over to not the progress worldview, And he's able to be secure about the the shrinking kind of baptism numbers because he finds joy in what's really going on. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. See, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, like Jesus, has a presence-orientated worldview, a presence-orientated worldview. It was his great joy to be in the presence of the bridegroom. It was his great joy to be about the bridegroom's business in that moment. He was able to pause and to step back and say, this is really what's going on here, and embrace that, not just kind of through a progress worldview, get insecure about the numbers going down. See, he didn't feel a pressure to grow his ministry. 
or complete God's work. He was just able to keep humble and to play his part. Guys, can I just publicly confess how deeply this has impacted me? How deeply this has impacted me. I know that I'm theologically convinced that I am not God. And that God is ultimately at work. But all too often, I think I'm still being driven by a progress worldview, a progress agenda which idolizes growth and numbers and significance and legacy. I'm driven by these things and I'm realizing that part of my contention with recognizing and embracing the joy of limits in my life is because I've given into that worldview. It's got hold of me and I'm missing out on a a presence worldview of being with God and enjoying the progress, I mean the presence of His processes in my life. I often feel that I've got to finish the work of God rather than just contribute to the work of God. I'm struggling to embrace limits because of that. I'm asking God to do a work in my life, and, and, and I want to invite you to pray for us as Common Ground Church, that we would invite God to do a work in our church, that we wouldn't find ourselves taken by a progress-orientated agenda, but we would give ourselves to a, a, a presence-orientated agenda. We spoke about this last year. We spoke about this at the beginning of this year when we were talking about kind of the ways of Jesus and practicing the way presence over progress, Right? Let's ask God to help us in these matters. Fourthly then, learning to embrace the joy of God-given limits in our lives is a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual matter. And I say this is a deeply spiritual matter because embracing God's limits can regularly increase our communion with God. Think of the, the fruit that we experience when we give ourselves to spiritual disciplines. How Sabbath rest. The rhythm of Sabbath rest can allow us to slow down in our lives. Pause, enjoy, slow the kind of pace, unwind the coil a little bit. Think about how silence can allow us to kind of shut out all the other noises and tune in to the noise that we need to hear most, the voice of God. How solitude can help us engage the Father Get away and engage the Father. Think about how times of prayer can bring us back to a place of humility and and, uh, being able to communicate our dependence upon God. Remind ourselves that this is a theological matter. God is God and I am not. What about how prioritizing daily Bible reading, how much that can create an opportunity of healthy discipleship diets in our lives. Fundamentally, I believe when we really give ourselves to these things, when we say, God, you are good. God, you know me best and you love me most and you've encouraged me in these things. I would be crazy not to give myself to them. Crazy. This is a deeply spiritual matter. See, I think sometimes we miss a key point here. We miss the reality of what John seemed to embrace. He must increase. See, John realizes this is the upside down kingdom. John realizes that it's as we give ourselves to, in a sense, less of our agenda and more of God's agenda that we get welcomed into true life and fullness of purpose. 
But John also didn't seem to kind of write off God's provision, right? He, he lived very humbly, that we have to note. But verse 27, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is secure in the provision of heaven being perfect for us. So I want to encourage us when we say no to some of these other busyness elements, often driven out of that kind of either theological or worldview matter, we must get ahead or we must make it happen for ourselves. When we give ourselves to embracing limits in these things, fundamentally we are saying, God, we trust you in these other matters, matters of provision, etc. Businesswoman, when you prioritize saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into God's word and I'm going to pray here and I'm not going to give myself to my final prep on that presentation. When you say yes to that, you can fully trust that God has the outcome of that presentation in hand. Guys, when you say no to, hey, I'm not going to take on that new initiative because you feel like you want to be at home and that thing's going to take you away from home more than you should be or would want to be. When you do that, you can trust that God has your perfect provision in mind. He knows exactly what you need and you can trust him with that. You are not God. John the Baptist recognizes God gives us what we need. It's given from heaven. See, embracing limits in our lives can greatly enhance our spiritual lives in two ways. One, we get to engage God more. Two, we get to see God work more. Because when we get out the way and he does stuff, how cool is that? And I've seen that over and over and over again in counseling people, making big decisions. And it's kind of like, oh, doesn't feel like the right thing to do. But look how much I'd be missing out on. Trust God. Trust God. Do the right thing. Make the right decision. Trust God. And then to see God do things that none of us expected. How beautiful. Fifthly and lastly, when it comes to the experience the experiencing of the joy of embracing limits in our lives. I think we need to realize that embracing limits is a very practical matter. This is my least spiritual kind of uh, point out of the five, but it could make the most difference because many of us think we're going to wake up tomorrow morning with the new understanding and now limits are just going to be in place and embraced in our lives. And it doesn't work like that, right? We need to do the work We need to do the work. And really, this last point is just common sense. I'm not trying to draw it from a specific scripture here this morning. But I do want us to make sure that we're saying yes to doing the work. Do whatever you need to do. I'm doing some reading, two great books that I'm finding very helpful in my personal life. I've bought a 275 rand little Nokia phone so that I can parent my phone and put my other phone that everybody's got the number of to sleep. And only my wife and kids have got the number of this thing. And sometimes I need to realize I am not God. The church, the world, none of those things are going to fall apart when I parent my phone and put it to sleep. But my Family can still get a hold of me for 275 rand, right? You've got to get practical with these things of living into your theology, embracing your limits, prioritizing spiritual realities. What about your time management? What about your expectations of yourself and others? What about that parenting your phone and putting it to bed early? What about creating some friction when you make decisions? See, I'm inclined if you say, hey, don't you want to come for a bra? I'm like, yeah, cool, that sounds amazing. Now, Put some friction in there. Friction is, 
I would love to, thank you for the invitation, but I just need to check with my wife, I need to check with my calendar, and I need to pray a quick prayer, because guess what? I'm inclined to say yes in the moment, and so now there's some friction, some friction between the yes, the invitation, and the, and the response moment, and when I come back to you and I say, yes, I would love to do that, you must know I'm going to bring the fullness of my presence to that moment, because I believe this is the right thing to do, and my calendar, my wife, and my God have all said yes, Right? We need to create friction in these things, else limits are not something we embrace in our lives. And here's my top tip on this. Get with God on these things, and get with some wise people on, on these things. And don't get with the people who seem to be squeezing the most in in their lives. Get with the people who've got the deepest spiritual walk with God that you look up to, and that you celebrate, and you want to become more like. Get with those people, and then learn what you can learn. Because here's my, here's my experience. I wrote it like this. I'm a recovering calendar master myself, but I don't feel like you should learn from me in this thing. I feel like this. It's often the people that are doing the most, that are not doing the most, that we have the most to learn from. It's often the people that are not doing the most that we have the most to learn from. And of course, ultimately, as we bring this into land, ultimately, we are Christians. Christians mean we are those who follow Christ. We are called to be little Christs in our world. And he is our great example of this. We come to him, Christ, the head of the church, and we say, lead us on in these matters. We say yes to being Christians. And we say, Christ, lead us on in these matters. See, what's so inspiring about our real hero in these things is that he didn't give in to all the calls and all the cries of the crowd. He pulled away and he prioritized his time with the Father, intimacy. He embraced limits in his life. He only took on 12 disciples. No doubt that, and he did it because there's a lot of kind of imagery and symbolism in those 12. But but imagine if you weren't in the 12. Maybe you were in the 18. He had to disappoint a whole bunch of people to say yes to receiving the limits that God had put in place. When he was tempted, what does he do? He doesn't buy into the progress worldview of now, quicker, faster, immediately is the best for me. And he says no to the devil in that moment. And he says yes to to God's slow and agonizing, including the cross curriculum for his life. And aren't we glad he did? Aren't we glad he did? How crazy. He limits his public ministry. He limits his public ministry to three years and a very small geography. And then he does the unthinkable. He leaves the rest of the work to others. Ryan, you need to hear this point. And here's the beautiful part. At the end of Jesus' work, what does he do? What does he do? Beautifully, at the end of his work, he speaks to his father and he says that I have finished the work that you have given me to do. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. I think it's a beautiful thing. Again, he embraces the limits of his role and his time on earth. I think this is such an example to us. And I'm not sure about you today, but I don't want my relationship with God and my wife and my kids and my friends 
and what God's called me to do is my vocation. I don't want this community. I don't want my neighbors. I don't want anyone else to suffer any longer for me operating as an overdrawn version of who God has called me to be. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a little Christ. I want to live in the limitations that Christ gave himself to. And I want to bring and allow for his best to be received as a joyful dynamic in my life. The fact that we got 24 hours. The fact that we got one life to live. These are all things that God has called us to. Let's allow him to lead us on in these matters that we may become more like him and that we may ultimately glorify his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we so know that what we're talking about here, these are, in a sense, very practical matters, but way before they're practical matters, these are very deep matters. These are matters where we need to become more comfortable as you were comfortable, as John the Baptist was comfortable, with recognizing who you have called us to be and who we are not called to be. That we are not God. That we are not God. That we cannot control the whole narrative. That we cannot control the outcome. But God, we can trust one who is in control. God, I pray that today would be a moment of deep reckoning for many.